People with complex emotional needs, also known as personality disorders, are sometimes stigmatised due to a lack of understanding about the condition, which can then lead to negative or poor treatment. This is podcast two of the Stigma podcast. Nina is a lived experience practitioner and Neil is an art therapist. They will be sharing what they are doing to help reduce stigma in their NHS services. Please be aware some of the conversation may be triggering to some listeners. Hi Neil, Uh, thanks very much for making the time to discuss the topic of today's podcast, which is all about reducing existing stigmas uh, surrounding personality disorders slash complex emotional needs. So I want to start with intro, so I will introduce myself and kind of my role and then it will be great if you could um, kind of share your role and what team you work in. So I'm Nina, I uh, am a service user, I do quite a bit of work within the East London Foundation Trust um, Transformation Programme, and I I do have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, and I do quite a bit of work just trying to advocate for more cultural competence and generally a better service, essentially. Over to you. That's really impressive. I think it sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so my name is Neil Springham. I'm an art therapist by background. So I I trained in the 1980s. So I've seen NHS services all the way back since the mid 80s to here. And I've seen some things change and I've seen other things not change. I started by working in addictions. And there were lots of people with very similar issues to people who get the diagnosis of personality disorder in addiction field. And I absolutely loved it. I really liked the people. I enjoyed the work. Then I specialised in um, treatment services for people with personality disorder because I was very, very interested in the emerging field of mentalization and attachment. So I then joined some services as an art therapist delivering art therapy within those that area. And the work felt very familiar to me, um, felt very familiar to the work in addictions. Again, I really liked the people, I liked the kind of whole vibe of it. But the other thing, Mina, that I did was, I was very aware that only a very small number of people would get services, uh, specialist services. And I was always really interested in what people were saying about their experience of things like crisis services or wards or other, you know, or things out in the community in the third sector. And cut a long story short, I developed a co-production group with people who'd used our services. So after they'd finished therapy, they would come in, use lived experience, work within the trust, and we would try and improve the patient experience the way services are. And that became more and more interesting to me about listening to people who've used the service to try and improve how you run it, and then actually including people in how you run it, um, who've used services, just all seem to make practical sense to me. So my current role is I'm an executive director of therapies. I wanted to do that role because actually now I really want to put in place some of the things that, that I feel I learned when mm-hmm. I was a clinician, but also when I was just working side by side with, uh, with people who'd use services to try and improve it, working with people as colleagues, not as patients. So, so that's me. 
That's really uh, great to hear because I am someone who is a big advocate for co-production. Um, for the listeners' benefit, co-production is when you have people who have lived experience of accessing a mental health service be a part of uh, shaping what that service looks like. And I think the reason why I feel so strongly about it is because, you know, other than it making practical sense, as you said, I think it's also about the fact that as a service user, I feel valued, like my voice matters. And I think that is an important element of transforming services and making it suitable for people with CEN, for example. So that's a big reason why I am always advocating for more co-production and for that to be from the outset, not like something sort of halfway through when loads of decisions have been made already. So really good to hear that. I would love to know a bit more about art therapy because I um I didn't really know that it was a thing until a few years ago. I was under the impression that therapy was just, you know, this quite narrow, narrowly defined thing where you'd go into a room, you'd sit down with a mental health professional and very, very daunting prospect to be to be quite honest with you. And you just have to talk, you have to talk it out. I'm a bit of a chatterbox but not everyone is so it might be that someone finds it easier to communicate through another medium especially when like me there is this kind of struggle to regulate emotions so can you first tell us a bit more about what you do and why it's helpful for people with CEN um, and CEN just um, so everyone knows it stands for complex emotional needs and it's kind of an alternative term to personality disorder and we'll talk a bit more about that later on. That's a great question Mila. I, I, I get what you say I think art therapy is a bit newer to the game than some of the other professions. So we've been around, well, since the Second World, end of Second World War started to develop, professionalised in the 1960s, growing steadily since. That's actually quite new, given that psychology or psychotherapy or nursing or these other things are, are older, you know. But to me, again, it's a pragmatic thing. I really loved the art therapy I did with people with complex emotional needs. Partly because I think what you're saying is absolutely right. A lot of people feel they can talk and some people feel they can't talk. But even some people who can talk find it quite difficult to name emotions with accuracy, probably because they haven't been helped to do so. You know, it's about someone being interested in you that helps you name emotions. What I saw when I was doing art therapy was that most people would go, oh my God, this is an awful idea. I absolutely hate this idea. And uh, I also hate the idea of doing this in a group as well. But um, generally, I think you probably agree, most people who come into services have a great deal of courage. So um, we got through that. And what tended to happen was that people would draw pictures and find them meaningless when they first do them that they just think, why am I doing this? This is like going back to school, this is awful. But it was when other people in the group started to look at their work and see things in it, that we started to get a really, really interesting group process. So other people would be doing things like asking questions about things in people's pictures. They might say, actually, I feel exactly the same. And then we noticed that the person who'd made the picture would then start to see meaning in it. 
when other people start to talk about it and when they start to talk about it with other people. So it becomes a way of developing meaning by connecting with people. And then I think people feel very, very connected, but it doesn't start expecting people to be able to say what they're feeling or say what's going on. So it's a slow, gentle process, a bit baffling at the beginning, mm -hmm. but um, I really loved what I saw in there. And lastly, I don't know if you'd agree with this, I think many people who experience complex emotional need issues tend to have some sort of art in their life. They tend to uh, either music, poetry, or you know, uh, they might be in a choir, they might have um, a sketchbook. It's mm -hmm. something that I think people naturally gravitate towards it. And they might not call it therapy, but it's very, very important in their life. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I am a writer, so I I love to write poetry. I I write articles. Yeah. Um, so and and also just as someone with a younger sibling, I do a lot of drawing. I don't think I'm particularly good at it, but I find it very soothing. So I can completely understand, uh, you know, the appeal of art therapy. And I guess what's frustrating to me is that, like, I've never been offered it. So I feel like it's quite a specialist thing. And I would really love to for it to be more widely available, because, like, I think I would absolutely jump at the chance to manifest certain things that I can't say. Because, you know, like you were saying, even people who are quite confident when they speak may not be able to coherently kind of name those emotions because it can be really overwhelming. I kind of talk about CEN as the volume of my emotions are just turned up a lot. And so that can make it feel almost deafening for me at times. And, you know, I'm sure there are others who who might feel similarly. And, and so when you have when you have your artistic medium, there's a way of kind of channeling that outwards and that can be really really therapeutic in itself so I didn't I didn't actually realize that was something that people had in common sort of um within the CEN umbrella but I think it makes a lot of sense for sure. I think there is a lot of creativity in the CEN and community and I, I pick up on the other point you say I think the, the issue is more that people have been told that they're not artists or they've been told that they're not a writer or I mean and there's it's quite hard for people sometimes to believe in what they're doing but I, I really hope they do because the arts seem to and I've, I was actually talking at a, a conference an international conference on this mm -hmm. and uh, this is something that people are talking about everywhere now and of course number one is loads and loads of people get enormous benefit from the arts and I loved what you said about the large-scale, high-volume emotions, you know, and something about the quietness of the arts activities, just yeah. helping people to both connect, but at the right distance, so you're not overwhelmed. Yeah. This is incredibly helpful. But again, the, the problem is people's self-esteem, they're worried that they're not good enough. All of that is a, can be a plague. But of course, the way around that is to just be with other people who are doing the same thing and realise... It's just something we've been told that some people are artists and some people are not. It's it's not true. Yeah, absolutely. Like I have been suffering from writer's block, so I can totally relate to that. Oh. And there's a sense of, is it going to be good enough? And 
that kind of stops me from even starting. But, you know, I was in a group, a poetry group recently, and we were asked to just create something on the spot, and I was able to write something. And so I think it is, I think there's a huge role in kind of community and connecting with like-minded people when it comes to, you know, the arts in general and, and with CEN, because there is often a feeling of kind of loneliness or like uh, you're the only person who feels that way but actually it's a feeling that is shared by so many people and I think that's something we should really capitalize on you know in terms of when offering treatment. Okay great I just wanted to kind of touch on a big element of the mental health work that I do which is often about terminology so for some it might seem like semantics but for others, language can be really important, especially in a field that feels as stigmatised as mental health. So would you be able to sort of explain why what the term CEN means and why we prefer to use it instead of uh, personality disorder? Yes. So uh, let me just go down this rabbit hole and no <laughs> doubt I on every level to uh, resolve anything. Personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, a, t a term invented in the 1970s, already described by the person who, who coined the term borderline personality disorder as a wastebasket term. They didn't believe it themselves after a while. Um, I because, um, and I think um, it's something that I heard Peter Fonagy say that, well, it's not in the personality, it's not a disorder, and it's on the borderline with nothing. Apart from that, it's fine. It's a joke, by the way. Um, you know, so, um, <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't really mean anything. Now, one of the tricky things I find with terminology, and I completely agree with you, this is not semantics. They have real, real effects in people's lives and in the world, all the way down to, you know, um, whether you can join things, different sorts of benefits, you know, um, how other people see you. I completely agree, Mina. These are not semantic terms. So I've seen some people receive this diagnosis of borderline personality disorder or personality disorder and feel initial relief. And what they said was that um, it made them feel understood and it explained things. I think at other times, they then started to see that there was a pigeonhole in process. People were making assumptions based on that and uh, you know, um, some of the downside of it. Complex emotional needs, I think, is an elegant title. It puts the emotions at the centre. Mm. And the fact is, none of us are born able to control our emotions. None of us. It's only through particular experiences as we grow up that we are shown how to do that, you know, through kind of loving care and things like that. Not everyone gets this. So... Putting complex emotions, not only having strong emotions, but also perhaps having experiences where you felt ashamed of things or you felt very lonely and separate, that complexity is really, really important. The word needs, well, I think that's nice because actually it shows this is not just people mucking around or being drama queens or whatever. These are genuine needs that all of us need human connection. I think one of the central things we're working with in this area is that the strong emotions can be confusing to the person and to people around and get in the way of 
very, very ordinary, simple connections, which would be very, very helpful. So complex emotional needs moves it away from being like an illness or a, something wrong with your brain or something like that, and just kind of names it in a bit more of a simple way for me. I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you feel it works better? I, I also had a very similar um, reaction when I had the diagnosis in the sense that I felt relief, I felt understood. Uh, and and I was like, okay, there's a it makes sense. There's a reason why this is happening. But and and I also think for me it was important because it meant that I uh, was then prescribed a mood stabilizer, which helped to kind of take the edge off my mood when things were I didn't have a lot of stability, and that really helped because um, you know I was able to get some sleep, which sounds like a small thing, but actually. Being able to get sleep was what helped me to kind of um, get get back on my feet, get a job um, and, you know, enter the workforce and be in, in a more stable position, I think. And, you know, all of those things, I'm not discounting them. At the same time, when I think of the other term for borderline personality disorder, which is emotionally unstable personality disorder, it makes me sound really scary and I don't like that. And I don't like the idea that there's something wrong with my brain. I I do prefer complex emotional needs, but I do know of people who don't like that term either, um, because it kind of feels a bit infantilizing. It's kind of like, yeah, you have those needs, and you know, people kind of liken it to the use of special needs and how that is often again seen as having sort of negative or paternalistic kind of connotations to it that you know don't don't necessarily sit well with people. So I think it's really hard to find something that works for everyone. And I think it, it reminds me a bit of kind of the debate that I'm currently having around the term BAME, as in Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, because a lot of people don't like that term either, it, because it kind of implies that you can shove all the Black and Brown people uh, together under this huge umbrella and, you know, give them a one-size-fits-all kind of approach, which completely ignores kind of the diversity and the richness of, of those communities. So I feel like there is a sense of uh, something similar happening here. But I also think like for brevity's sake, you want to have something that a, a way to refer to a certain uh, group of people. And I think if if I had to choose between PD and CEN, I would definitely go with CEN purely because it sounds less punitive. It sounds less negative than, than personality disorder. It's tricky because I'd, I don't know if I'd if I'd even disclose that I have CEN. When it when I'm thinking about like disclosing things to my employer, for example, I don't think I'd ever feel comfortable um, saying to my employer, yes, I have a diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder. Because for them they would be there would automatically be some kind of negative bias, even if it's not conscious. Because I would have that bias, to be quite honest with you. I would I would look at that and to be honest, alarm bells might start ringing because I might not even know what it is. If I'm someone who's not educated in this area, which a lot of people aren't, then they're not going to know. And that kind of stigma is something that we really have to kind of work hard to dispel. So that brings me quite nicely onto my next question, which is, 
as a visibly Muslim woman of colour, I come up against a lot of barriers in everyday life as it is. Um, and that, of course, includes the stigma and the negative connotations of a label like emotionally unstable personality disorder. So what do you do personally and your services more widely to dispel this kind of stigma, especially for communities of colour? I think you're making some really great connections in the way that we name groups of people, mm. um, either in mental health or in terms of race or culture. Um, and uh, you probably notice I'm going to steal quite a few of your ideas here. <laughs> so, um, number one, why do we name groups? Why do we name um, BAME? Why do we name PD? A lot of these things are exactly like you say, they're a shorthand um, and they're for a particular purpose. So something like personality disorder service, we name that because um, in mental health services, we name that because we want to bring together a set of skills and a particular approach to meet a typical set of pattern of problems that people come with that other services probably, you know, it doesn't fit so well, you know. But of course, the limitation is that the brief description becomes a label and then it becomes a kind of prison. And uh, it almost gets linked as if it's to do with the person, which is an absolute home goal. That's a complete mistake. So something in my mind, I it's probably a little bit more like the trauma informed care sort of principles of actually let's try and go back to the basics and think about the types of problems that people come to services with and think about whether our services actually are accommodating of that and number one for complex emotional needs is having staff who understand that strong emotional reactions particularly at the point of help seeking may seem confusing but they are understandable and they're something that people can't help because they're in that particular, their distress expresses itself that way. And there are some really quite straightforward things you can do to help. That's fine. So that's kind of like describing the problems, but it's a bit of a mouthful. I think when we start to talk about other forms of diversity within that, even the PD diagnosis, borderline personality disorder, it's over 500 combinations of those different symptoms that you can have there. That's just taking the kind of, uh, this short sort of list of symptoms. But then when you uh, factor in social factors, such as people's experience of their community or people's experience of racism, people's experience of difference in all these uh, multiple forms, then all of our simple descriptions, they really start to discriminate, um, uh, uh, not just uh, disintegrate rather, and actually cause us problems. I think I thought of the word discriminate because it's actually then, if you stay with, so basically we label things because it helps us to do treatment. Those labels are not the people. Pe no one is a personality disorder, you know, that's, labeling something so that we can design services around it. It's a complete error to link that to the person. So I think the labels are there to help us organize services, but then every single person who comes in 
to that service is going to have a very unique experience of the social relations and social world that they come from. That's a big piece of work to do, to really be listening to people's stories, to not sort of have this sausage machine where, oh, you've come up with these problems, we do this, and stop telling me about these other things that don't fit my model, such as race and culture. So what we need is a workforce that can understand that we label things for the convenience of services and then let go of those labels and start to apply mega loads of curiosity because generalizations are going to be the enemy of trying to work out what happens to someone in their community experiences of marginalizations in fact generalizations are kind of the problem and, and i think you described it very nicely people making assumptions those are generalizations so we've got to be really brave got to be really brave and have our models that we treat people with, but also we've got to let them go a bit and start finding out who this other person is, which is probably more in line with what you were talking about with co-production. But, you know, this is harder at the beginning, but works better all the way through if you do it, in my experience. Yeah, I get the feeling that there may be growing pains in the same way that there are with, um, like, the art therapy that you do and... Um, kind of at the beginning people aren't sure that they that they see meaning in it but then other people around them kind of point it out and in the end they have some really meaningful conversations and I think a similar approach would be like if, if we think about kind of approaching co-production for everything I think maybe there are going to be growing pains because it's going to be a, maybe a bit of conflict between clinical experience and lived experience but I think it's really important to have that combination for exactly the reasons you said and especially because nothing nothing in medicine or in um, mental health care exists in a vacuum everything exists in you know the world that we live in today and the injustices that people face and the prejudices that people come up against so I think being really acutely aware of that as as a mental health professional is absolutely key okay I also want to touch on something else you said about trauma-informed care, because that is actually something I deliver training for in East London. I feel really, really strongly about this, and I'm I'm very curious about kind of uh, what you think the role of trauma is in the work that you do, and do you think that this correlates with the clients that you see who have CEN? Uh, it's a great question. So I think the field of trauma-informed care is growing. What I think is the basic principles of it, um, and I think we have to be clear about this, that uh, I think sometimes people confuse it with trauma treatment, you know, treatment yeah. for PTSD or something like that. Actually, we're talking about something very different. What we're talking about is, is that basic question of not so much asking what's wrong with you, but asking mm. what's happened to you. And that, that seismic shift opens up and I'm going to go back to something you said, because I really liked it about growing pains. Because mm -hmm. um, actually it is going to get pain, but at least there's growing going on when you're experiencing that pain and trying to find out what happened to you. So I think a trauma-informed service will be sensitive to recognising that people's experiences will really affect the way they seek help and the way they experience receiving it. But... You have to do the work to find out what's actually happening for uh, for that person. So it's not like 
that's why I make the big difference between PTSD work, you know, where you kind of work through a particular protocol. I think this forces us to sort of say, I don't know what you've been through. Let me ask you about it. Let me try and find out. And let's try and build a narrative around that that can help us make sense of what's happening, which is completely different from you've come with uh, a BPD label. Let me give you BPD treatment and then next, you know, sausage factory kind of stuff. So trauma informed care to me creates a lot of growing pains and uh, yeah. a lot of pain because it's a lot of hard work. But, you know, I probably like you, I've seen the difference this makes. I've seen, it's, it's very linked to, I think, individualized care, you know, really just trying to sort of see what this person, I think it's a very interesting process. There's probably mm -hmm. more to discover about it, but um, to me, the big shift is the, the shift between what's wrong with you to what's happened to you. And then we, we have to ask lots and lots of questions after that and try and understand. Yeah, and I think when we think about the difference between personality disorder and complex emotional needs, we are changing the question there because personality disorder kind of implies that there's something wrong with someone, whereas complex emotional needs suggest that, you know, um, people have certain needs. And in my opinion, it's, it's often related to you know things that have happened to them um so like in the work that i do within the transformation in the east london nhs foundation trust we we have a whole pathway that we've been developing on um complex emotional needs and part of that is about the role of trauma in in kind of uh, people who have these diagnoses, because there is quite a strong correlation between people who have experienced a type of trauma and who, who have CEN. You know, we, we did a small scale study within Tower Hamlets and we found that 80% of our clients who had CEN also had experienced at least one type of trauma. So I think there is definitely something to be said about kind of people's experiences and how that can affect the kind of support that they seek out if they do. My next question is kind of about things that you've touched on a bit already but I, I want to kind of dig into a bit more. Um, what role does uh, cultural competence play in the type of therapy that you offer? And is art therapy ever kind of dismissed because it's not a conventional form of therapy? Well, those are great questions. This is where I go back to training in the 1980s. Um, nobody was talking about race and culture. Well, well, a few areas were, but they were outliers. You know, there was still a sort of monolithic idea of the way NHS services were, were working. I've got to say that um, I think within the art therapy world, there's always been quite a focus on this. And I think it's probably to do with the arts and a sensitivity to the arts, which is, which I think forces you to see that, you know, particularly sort of Western art and uh, it's only one sort of particular sort of angle that you would take on this. And what that is, is almost like a gateway to thinking much more widely from arts and culture to culture and race and all those issues. So within my own profession for a very, very long time, we've had a um, special interest groups within the professional body on this, challenging a lot of the ideas, you know. 
I think cultural competence is a really, really interesting one because I think I got completely the wrong end of the stick when I first trained, thinking somehow this would be a group of competencies or skills that mm. would somehow allow me to kind of understand anyone. And I look back, I think that's ridiculous. That's so naive. Now I realise, and it's what I said earlier, that um, we need to not think of cultural competence as a set of knowledge because that will only lead us to generalizations, pigeonholing and, you know, all of that stuff. I think it's a bit like what we were saying about the um, trauma-informed care, that what it's going to do is to throw you back and to reflect on what assumptions you are making and to try and find ways of just challenging those assumptions and finding out what the experience is of the other person on many many levels and the thing is with culture is no one can escape it we're all soaked in particular forms of culture and those goes back generations for all of us so it's really really hard to see but i think lately i think cultural competence i think it's being articulated very very well i think it's coming into mainstream nhs services I think, again, our dear friend co-production is really, really helping because when we listen to people who use services, they're saying, they're pointing out things which you just can't see in yourself. Cultural competence, the answer is not in yourself. It's in the other person. You need to ask questions and you need to work out what questions you need to ask. So, so that's, that's kind of my journey in a nutshell with cultural competence. And uh, I see actually enacting it as a form of co-production and again, growing pains. Yeah. Great ways. I'm going to steal <laughs> it from you. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that I kind of have spoken about recently when it comes to cultural competence is about, you know, very specific kind of knowledge of certain cultures. So, for example, I come from a Bengali background. And what most people don't know is that people, the Bengali people in East London generally tend to speak uh, Sileti, which is a different dialect of Bengali. It's not the standard dialect and a lot of people can't actually speak the standard dialect. They also can't read the standard dialect and there isn't a way to kind of write down uh, the Sileti dialect. So that means a lot of translated materials are then not very helpful for people because they can't read it. Um, and even if they can, they may not understand it to the same extent they would if it was spoken in the dialect that I, I speak on a daily basis. So that's something that I remember when I spoke about it, you know, people were very surprised. They were like, I had no idea about this or, you know, other things within certain cultures, um, other stereotypes that might come up. All of these things, they come from lived experience. They don't come from you know, a sense of, they, they don't come from having studied something, but it's from having lived in and being part of a culture, which is why, yeah, I completely agree. Co-production is so key, absolutely. And, and also just um, on the second part of my question, is it ever kind of, is art therapy ever kind of dismissed by people because it's not- Oh, sorry, I forgot that bit. No worries. Um, I think it was. Um uh it was not dismissed by people who use services who regularly ask for it it's really interesting there's a set of studies uh, amongst norwegian personality disorder treatment services where they looked at what are the optimal components in day treatment services and the service users kept asking for art therapy so 
Do you know what I mean? I, I think the more that we listen to service users, the more they will say these type of activities matter. In terms of dismissing it now, I think we needed to engage more with the evidence-based paradigm. So art therapists have become more involved in research and uh, that's good because that, that helps us to ask ourselves really important questions about whether we're doing works or not, or whether, you know, what's the active ingredients, all those sort of questions. Again, questions, it doesn't particularly give you straightforward answers, but um, I think that strengthened art therapy and I see it, I see it growing, but it's in so many different areas. We're not a huge profession, so about mm -hmm. two and a half thousand. And if you think of working with kiddies in schools or women's refugees, you know, learning disabilities, it's, it's spreading quite a little, quite thin. So you never get huge groups of art therapists, which perhaps you might with other professions and it would take on a prominence. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's being dismissed so much. Plus, one of the pieces of work I was really interested in was using the arts to give people a voice, to give mm -hmm. people, you know, so we did quite a lot of work helping people use their own artworks as a way of describing what they've experienced with their sort of mental ex uh, states and emotional experiences, you know, these difficult to describe states. They use their art incredibly powerfully. And I think then everyone can see why the arts are important because you can depict something in a way that's quite hard to name it. And once you see it, you think, oh yeah, this is not such a wacky idea. This isn't so hippie-ish after all, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can definitely, I'm thinking of people I know who would definitely call it hippie-ish, but yeah, yeah. Um, What's they bring it on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Also, like, I'm just thinking of, you know, music and drama therapy yes. and how those are really important. Like, I was in a music therapy studio the other day just for work, not actually to receive their therapy. And I'm not someone who can sing very well, um, but I, I was in the studio and they said, oh, do you want to record something? So I said, of course, yeah, I'll uh, read out a poem that I really like. And there was something very soothing in doing that. Um, oh, brave. Well done. That's yeah, fantastic. yeah. And and this is the thing, you know, what you were saying about how the arts have a sense of quiet about them. I think that's really important because a lot of the noise of my emotions anyway, come from the stigma of mental health uh, issues, because in my family, it's kind of a taboo subject. It's not really something that my family really take very seriously or they think that it's not as uh important as you know sort of physical health they tell me oh you look fine you seem fine and they don't seem to realize that there is that there is a lot going on in my head and the only yeah. reason I'm really seeming fine is actually because I'm on certain medications I'm able to you know find ways to regulate my emotions but it's really, really difficult to speak about these things and to be vocal about these things because mm. a lot of the time there's a sense of, well, you're, you don't really have a mental illness, you're fine, you you don't seem to have any problems. So yeah, I've, I, I just think that it's important to have these options where you can let out a lot of what must be frustration at that in a way that is artistic and in a way that is, you know, meaningful for people. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if you've come across any clients who have 
had any sort of similar feelings from their families and I think I, that. no that's it's, I mean it's lovely the way you describe it and I, as you were talking I was thinking I, I would imagine your writing must come into this category as well of putting mm -hmm. things into but quietly you know writing is different from talking you know it's less yeah. interpersonal pressure you know all of that what I what we found is that at the end of treatment people sometimes make a film using their art therapy artworks very short film just saying here's a picture from when things were bad and here's mm -hmm. a picture when things improved and here's the story between picture one and picture two and there's something about people talking about their lived experience with this artwork that is incredibly powerful now we we made these films and they're quite short and then we of course it belongs to the person it doesn't belong to us it's their story and they did very interesting things with it. So when we had CDs back in the day, you know, um, <laughs> they actually, several people said, I'm going to take this to my GP to help them understand. And some of the GPs contacted us and said, oh, I get it. I get it. what's going on now. <laughs> Others decided, I think, quite carefully to play it to their family as well. I thought there was something about, instead of using the same old words, which end up in a clash, you know, of everyone digging in and doubling down on the words that they use, just bringing in something else. And it could be like writing, it could be poetry, it could be music, it could be songs, could be artworks. This just took us to a new arena to talk about, where everyone felt a bit less defensive, because I think for the families who are interested and caring about this, they carry a lot of worry and guilt about things. So it's always going to be a touchy subject. But if you can find a new arena to talk about these things, other than using the same words which people feel blamed about on both sides, then I think we could open up something quite different. Uh, I think that's probably an area that should be explored in the future, you know, to kind of, because probably what the arts are for, isn't it? It's to help us process difficult things that don't make sense in a culture. It's probably why all cultures do them. There must be a reason. Yeah, I'm just thinking now that like it would be so helpful for people if if there was that short film sort of thing and that was in their notes and that was part of their, yes. obviously with their yeah. permission, of course. Clearly it impacted people and, you know, GPs were able to understand better when it was in that different yeah. format. And I think that speaks to as well the universality of arts and uh, why they That's resonate. That's a great point. That's a great mm -hmm. point, Mina, the universality of it. Yeah. And it maybe that's that's one thing that's been a little bee in my mind about the word complex emotional needs and why I like it as a phrase, because emotional needs are universal. We all have them. Yeah. When we talk about complex emotional needs, we then have to ask the question, what made it complex? And that's where we get into life story and different fit between people. So you make a great point about let's try and get back to the universal bit, help mm -hmm. everyone join the human race again instead of these kind of labels and ways of thinking about these these types of problems which you know many many people experience instead of alienating people and making them other let's try and focus on the universal stuff so i, I really liked your point about the arts it creates a universal space for emotions absolutely excellent thanks so much um okay so this is my final question to anyone 
listening, who also struggles with either regulating their emotions or uh, the stigma that's kind of attached to um, any kind of mental health issues, but especially to do with complex emotional needs. Um, what advice would you give them about seeking mental health support? I think this is a great question. So I think it can be really difficult if you don't know what's happening yourself. Then try and explain it to services and it could be your GP, it could be that you're going to A&E because things have really um, got very hot and um, difficult. Number one, and I think this is where the role that you have is so important, is I think try and find your people first. Try and find people who are talking about this, not in a particularly medical or NHS way, but talking about being sort of brave enough to talk about their experience. And if you connect with it, then try and be very brave and compassionate to yourself and try and find ways to connect to some of these groups. Hear what people are saying. You might not agree with all of it, but you begin to build up a sense of this issue that we're talking about that isn't only from the sort of NHS side, as it were, it isn't only from the professional side because we're thinking about things in very problem-orientated things. Try and get a balanced view of what you think is going on and allow your view to change over time. And I think, of course, try and seek help, but above all, to please don't believe you're on your own or that you're strange or abnormal. None of us, as I said, are able to control our emotions. None of us are able to make sense of relationships. All of us feel strange. Um, and we all need help with that. And this is on a spectrum. And of course, some people have that tougher than others. But it doesn't mean you're broken or you're ill. But number one is find your people, either on um, through virtual means or by direct means. And um, allow your views to kind of evolve over time, because I think they will. So th that's what I think. I, when I've seen it, I think that's when people have done it really, really well. Okay, that's great. Well, Neil Springham, thank you very much for your time today. It's been uh, wonderful speaking with you about all of this. You're doing really, really great work and I'm glad you are because there is a lot of co-production to be done, a lot of growing pains to be had. And yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, thank you. And you made it a very, very easy interview. That's <laughs> no skill in that, you know. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you feel triggered by anything you've heard today, please do contact the links within the podcast or seek medical advice.